Welcome to the BC Messenger Podcast. This is episode 12 of the BC Messenger, Real Science, Real Bible, Real History, and Real World. And we are wrapping up season one. This is episode 12. We do one a month. So this is the 12th month that we have done our podcast. And I'm here today with my wife, Jennifer, as the two of us host this podcast from the small Midwestern town in the middle of Illinois. We're coming to you from the small town of Loda, Illinois, here in the heartland of America. And we want to pause as this episode goes out and say happy 247th birthday to the United States of America. Yes, and we were both born on bicentennial yeah we were both bicentennial babies 1976 which means we're both 47, 47 this year yeah and giving that away uh, yeah that's right we're giving our age away here <laughs> so the the country's 247th birthday is this year and I love the fourth of July here in yes the Midwestern uh flavor of the towns and the communities it's a really neat place to celebrate. Independence Day. And we were going to do some special activities this month. We had announced for our anniversary, for our one-year anniversary of the podcast, but we changed that. Right. We decided that we better wait until the actual first birthday of our podcast. So that's going to be in August. In August. So thanks for your patience with us as we delay that out one more month. And in August, we will be celebrating the one-year birthday of the BC Messenger podcast And we have quite a few uh, fun things planned, special things planned, and want our listeners to participate with us. I know you were waiting on pins and needles, but you'll just have to wait one more month and uh, we'll get into that. At the end of the podcast today, we do have something we want to share with you uh, that will be of interest to you as our listeners, and you can take action on that right away, actually. All right. Well, there was a lady... In modern times, Jennifer, who had more birthdays, we're on the kind of birthday theme here on our podcast, more birthdays than anyone else that is known. So how old do you think this person was? It was a lady, as Steve said, and she was from uh, France. France. She died in 1997 after celebrating 122 years of life. Wow. She actually died after 122 years and 164 days. And I'm going to try to pronounce her name, but I don't know how to pronounce it Do properly French, in the French, French accent. accent. Uh, Jean, Jean Calment, <laughs> as the best I can do. Jean Calment. That's, That's good. the Americanized that sounds version. sounds good to me. Okay. Yeah. And how old um, was she again? 122. 122. Wow. And 164 days. Right. Wow. So, I mean, hey, 122 and a half. She, of course, has been studied extensively her life because of her great longevity. But as you know, here on the podcast, we will be getting into more topics about longevity later in the broadcast. But I did read this online. I loved it. Uh, Jean was also famous for her wit and felt that her sense of humor had played a part in her (laughs) remarkable longevity. At her 120th birthday, Journalists asked her what kind of future she expected. And here's what she said. A very short one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was right. She was probably right. Yeah, well, she was was right. right. She lived two more years. Right. Yes. And, uh, of course, part of what we talk about here on the BCM podcast is uh, the aging research. And I think that uh, Ms. Calment will be coming up again in a little bit. Yes, later later. on into one of our segments. So we do need to give our rundown of what we're going to be talking about today. So today we have, first of all, our featured topic, the location of the biblical Rephidim, part two. So if you haven't heard part one, go back to the June podcast and listen to that. We will be discussing some more features of this site today of the biblical Rephidim. Then we have a research update for you, which is um, anytime Dr. Ardsma puts out brand new research, we bring it to you here as an update. And today we will be giving you one of those, which also pertains to the route of the Exodus, as does Rephidim. And then we have a quote of note quickly, 
uh, Aging 101. And again, some research updates with that um, and the implications of those. Then we have Helen's View, and this month it's unique. She is doing an interview with her youngest son, and you will not want to miss that. And then closing out again, talking about uh, the special activities planned for next month. So let's get right into it. Yes, we are on part two today of our featured topic on Rephidim. So we're going to have a review, just quickly, a review from last month, and continue our discussion about the location of the biblical Rephidim, considering some of the key features of the archaeological site at Beresesim. Um, is it possible that we can know the very spot where Moses struck the rock and water came forth? We're going to get into this today. What is meant by the textual reference to Horeb? Uh, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, the Lord said. And that's actually where we ended it last month uh, at that point. The identification of Rephidim. This is unique to the biblical chronologist. As far as I know, there's no one out here who has said we have found where this location is, and a lot of locations that the Bible gives to us in the account of the Exodus. Certainly not with this abundance of evidence exactly. that we have. Um, there are some interesting rock formations, split rocks that people have tried to say were Rephidim, but not with the detail of the evidence that we're giving here and the dating to the time period, etc. Exactly. So getting the chronology right is in, is the most important thing chronology that might we're talking to our kids about some of this right now and it might seem dry and it might seem boring but boy the places literally that it leads is absolutely amazing now some of you may be thinking i don't know what you're talking about split rocks and all that well if you don't know what we're talking about then you need to go back and listen to part 1 because part 1 we really get into all of this what is rephidim why is it such a big deal? What are the what what happened at Rephidim? Well, let me just quickly run down this as a quick review and then get into today's discussion. We began last month with the exciting Bible story, familiarizing ourselves with the events that took place at Rephidim. Dr. Ardsma has identified the archaeological site that is the biblical Rephidim. In March of this year, he released a new article entitled The Route of the Exodus, Part 4, The Identification of Rephidim, where this identification has been quite firmly established now. The biblical record of the Israelites' encampment at Rephidim is very extensive. It's all of Exodus 17 and Exodus 18. Israel comes out of Egypt before arriving at Mount Sinai, and they arrive at a location that the Bible calls Rephidim. Of course, this is after a number of other locations. Here, the people quarrel with Moses. They have no water to drink. They become very angry. God tells Moses to strike the rock. You remember that story? Water comes out of the rock that the people may drink. The scripture says, and Moses does what God says, while the elders of Israel are watching, when Moses does this, water comes forth for the Israelites to drink. Immediately following that miraculous and amazing event, in Exodus chapter 17, we see that the Amalekites come out to battle against, the, against Israel at Rephidim. Moses commands Joshua to gather the army to fight. Moses stations himself on top of the hill with his uh, with the two men there holding his arms up, staff of God in his hand, Israel prevails when his hands are up. You remember that story. And then the next thing that transpires at Rephidim is the arrival of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And of course, this brings in the people group called the Midianites. So that's what happened at Rephidim. And in Dr. Arzma's article, he reports that there's a number of things that attracted his attention to what today is called Bear Resesim. Now, you're not going to go to Israel today and find a place called Rephidim, but you will go to Israel today and find a place called Bear, B-E apostrophe E-R, Resesim. And by the way, Bear does mean well. Bear, the word Bear, if you see that B-E apostrophe E-R in Israel means well. Interesting. There is a well at this location. <clears throat> I noticed that if you Google Bear Resesim, uh, you will get a result that says Beresesim is a well and is located in Southern District of Israel. 
But what was interesting that we didn't bring out last month was the fact is the fact that there is a well there today and the fact that Moses was able to bring water forth from the underground water source that is there underneath the shale and is known to the natives, the Bedouins in the area, that there is water underneath those layers of rock. Right. So God showed Moses where to strike the rock. Water came forth. Right. And there is a well there to this day, which could very well be the very spot where Moses struck the rock. Because what do you think those Israelite men would have done as the water flowed forth and as they stayed there uh, for at least a number of days, they would have begun to dig a well. That's right. So there were various things here at this place called Bear Resisim that attracted Dr. Arzma's attention as he was discovering these, these things with the chronology. And one of those things is the pronunciation of Resisim with Rephidim. And then there's the Exodus pottery. I mean, this is of utmost importance. The, the pottery that we keep discovering at the right time is located in this place. And then the third was the fact that Bear Resisim is in a very appropriate location relative to the true Mount Sinai and the other locations that have been discovered. So that's, again, a little bit of review. And then we have the three distinct ethnic groups that need to be found in this place that we talked about last month are found in this place. And then, as you said, mentioned, Jennifer, already, the uh, the water from the rock that we talked about and the actual water underneath the shale in this location and Moses striking the rock. Again, we can't get into all that again this time. Now, we do have a complication here in the text, and this is where we ended last time, where God spoke to Moses and said, um, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. At Horeb. And that's where you're to strike the rock, Moses. And so what about this at Horeb? Because Horeb is often the word that is used in the Old Testament to describe Mount Sinai. However, the people have not yet arrived at Mount Sinai. That's the next location, according to the biblical account, that they're going to get to. So it's unlikely that God is standing that far away, you know, from, from Moses, from the people in Rephidim at Mount Sinai, and that he wants Moses to come all the way to Mount Sinai to strike a rock. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense with the biblical account. It makes no sense to strike a rock that God is standing on, located at the next encampment site to get water for the people to drink at the current encampment site. So, we do have a complication here. A textual question right. in this ancient text about this word Horeb. So looking up Horeb, or Koreb in the concordance, we find that it comes from a root word, which looks like Koreb, that appears 40 times in the Bible. And it's translated as, quote, to be dry or to be dried up, a waste. 16 times it's it's translated waste. It's translated dry seven times and dried up or dry up seven times in the King James translation. Now, of course, this is all very suitably descriptive of a dried up river or a dried up wadi bed in Israel. It's also interesting to note that though pronounced differently, the two words probably had identical spellings in the original manuscript. Vowels being uh, absent from ancient written Hebrew. You may not have known that, but the ancient Hebrew writing did not have vowels. The so, only difference between korab and karab is an E or an A. Right. So it's easy to see how the word karab could have been mistranslated as korab along the way, especially since horeb is such a key part of the entire Exodus account. There's another point that's made by Albert Barnes in his commentary that I found on the Bible. And he says, quote, Horeb was a name given to the whole desert of Sinai and subsequently attached to the mountain. So in any case, it's not hard to see that Horeb, as we're familiar with, in this instance was not intended most likely to mean Mount Sinai at all. But God was simply telling Moses to come and hit the rock where he was standing in a specific location within the dried up river or wadi bed. Right, right because the root word, karab, 
is a primitive root, means drought, um, desolate, et cetera. So in all of this um, discussion, you know, on this word Horeb, uh, Dr. Ardsma was able to just look at his Strong's Concordance, just like a pastor would preaching a message, you know, and say, here's what I've found out about the translation of these words. You can also... um, just look in the Strong's Concordance for it to say that Horeb was a general name for the Sinaitic Mountains. So it certainly does not have to mean the specific Mount Sinai. And that's right. that's pretty much what we're getting at. It, it means a wasteland, which is exactly where uh, Moses would have been standing down in the location there at Resasim. Yes, and it just makes the most sense because, again, how, how could they be at Mount Sinai and at Rephidim at the same time. Well, looking at these words, this is definitely a good explanation as to what this Horeb actually means. An interesting proposition that has been made on this translation of this word is that perhaps it was a Hebrew word that went out of use and became antiquated. An actual word, harab, that meant dried up wadi bed, and then the later translators were not familiar with that word because it had become antiquated, and so they put in Sinai, which was so similar except for the one vowel. Right. So just to make it clear what is being proposed here, let me read Exodus 17.6 again, uh, as currently it is translated, uh, which says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Okay, so again, God said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That is what is currently translated. What we are proposing is that it should be translated, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in the wadi, or in the dried up wadi, or the dried up riverbed, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Right. So, and uh, Dad has a really good friend who's a linguistics guy, and he reviewed this work on this word Horeb, Harab, Horeb. I can't say the Hebrew words very well. Anyway, the word that that this fellow used reviewing this work on um, this translation, he said it was brilliant. So, interesting ideas, yep. um, interesting thoughts. Okay, and we're going to move on from that, because yet there's another evidence of Be'er Resesim being the biblical Rephidim that we have not yet gotten into. This is very cool. I love this. Very interesting. Remembering the story of the battle with the Amalekites. We Again, we talked about this last month, how Aaron and Hur held Moses' hands up during that battle between Israel and the Amalekites. They were up on a hill, the Bible says, and Moses built, after the battle was over, Moses built an altar to the Lord at Beresesim. And there are, according to the archaeologists, I'm going to quote, two large rectangular buildings, both perched dramatically on the high ridges overlooking the main site. But parallels elsewhere suggest that they may be early Bronze Age or Middle Bronze Age One sanctuaries. Now, this is exact time frame that we want to be in. And so perched up on this hillside, looking over this wadi bed where water would have been flowing, where the battle would have been taking place, are these two sanctuaries that um, they have discovered were built at, at this place. The location of these two rectangular buildings, like memorials built sometimes after events take place, they're situated on a hill overlooking this bed of the Resisim River below. So it seems very likely that this could have been the scene of the battle, the site where the battle took place. Let me read you a little part of Dr. Arzma's article on this. Quote, it seems tactically that control of the newly established, established source of water would probably have been the objective of the battle. If the Amalekites could keep the Israelites and their herds from getting at this water, they would defeat the Israelites by thirst and dehydration. 
The biblical record of the battle naturally reads as a sort of seesaw contest, alternating between when, quote, Amalek prevailed and when Israel prevailed. This finds a natural explanation as alternating possession and control of this water source by the two armies throughout the course of the battle. Very interesting find there. And again, right here. It really the same is. Place. And there were sanctuaries on the top of the hill there. Uh, not necessarily built right then, but this was such a significant thing that happened to the Israelites. This was their first battle after the uh, the e- Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea, and here they are free, uh, free people, and out in the wilderness, and this is their first battle. And so it certainly makes sense that at some time subsequent to this happening, they would have built memorials there. Right. As a, you know, this is where God did this for us. And I would encourage people to go back now that we've had this, these discussions about the lay of the land and all that we've talked about with it, go back and read in Exodus these passages. What is it, 17 and 18? Yes. Um, and read that in light of what we've discussed, and it just comes to life. I mean, it really does. Why yes. would this army have come up to fight them? Well, because here's water in the desert. And here's this giant group of free people that are looking to be a threat right. in the area. And just it just fascinates you when you see it in the real world. Yes, it does. And okay, so wrapping up this section, let's just do a real brief run through here of what we had an overview of what we, what we have said. This location that Dr. Arzma has pinpointed as Rephidim, it dates to the right time matching the new biblical chronology. It is in the right region relative to the other sites that have been, have been identified, including Mount Sinai. It is showing us, just as the Bible says, three distinct ethnic groups. There's evidence for three distinct ethnic groups matching the three the Bible tells us about in this location. The most amazing account, of course, in this is the water from the rock. And in this location, there is water underneath rocks, um, artesian pressure, artesian pressure. Yes. The lay of the land matches the biblical description of the account, the story. And then on top of all this is the phonetic similarity of Resisim and Rephidim. I mean, the evidence just continues to build one thing on top of another in this location, just like is happening with all the other locations that we see. So, We encourage you to download a copy of Dr. Arzma's article, The Route of the Exodus, Part 4, The Identification of Rephidim. All right, and now we're going to move into a research update, which flows right along with this discussion. And we have a new site identified. Uh, This time, it is the location of Mara. And we will not get into details here because this is a brand new article, and we want you to go and read the article until we get a chance to discuss it here on the podcast. But Mara is, what happened at Mara, Steve? Well, it was that amazing account where the water was undrinkable. The Bible, I think the Bible account in some versions says bitter. And I always had this idea that Moses took a stick and tossed it in and the waters cleared up. Well, anyhow, where Moses took a tree, of some sort, threw it in the water, the waters became drinkable at Mara. The bitter water became sweet or drinkable. And we now have a location pinpointed for Mara. Uh, I cannot give the details away. I wish I could, Uh, but I will say seven out of the 11 stops from Egypt to Sinai have now been identified. Succoth, Etham, Pihahiroth, Mara, Elam, Rephidim, and Sinai. With amazing evidence it's for incredible. each account. Yes. It is incredible. I will say this. Uh, you will not find a tour group taking you on such a tour because due to the chron- chronological problems, they do not know where these sites are. I did Google it, and here's what I found. There is a tour group called Friendship Tours that will take you on a route of the Exodus. Uh, what do they call it? The, the Exodus, Exodus of, of Moses. Moses tour. Here's where you go. You start in Egypt. You go from Egypt to a proposed mountain for Sinai, and then you go to Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. And to the Sea of Galilee. They don't take you to Succoth? 
They don't take you to. They don't take you to Elam. Elam, Mara, Rephidim, Succoth, Pihahiroth. None, none of these. Why? Uh, because they don't know where they are. They now they're not going to tell you are. that. They they have this tour <laughs> called the Exodus of Moses, and I'm sure it's very interesting to go on that. But we are working towards the goal of being able to take tour groups to these sites that are newly identified. Right. It is going to be a one-of-a-kind thing when we finally get all the pieces in place to take people. Right. And it's a big process, of course. And Steve and I are novices at traveling abroad. So this is going to be all new for us. But we, with the Truth in Time ministry, will be the tour guides eventually for this, Lord willing. And so going back to our theme at the beginning of patriotism— uh, guess what our first step is in being able to take tours to Israel? Yeah. I actually have to get my American citizenship. You're not an American citizen? <laughs> <laughs> I have news for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jennifer, when we lived in Virginia, in the South, in Virginia, one time she told one of those Southern gentleman down there that she was from Canada, born in Canada. I was Canadian. And uh, he, he said, oh my goodness, she's an extreme Yankee. That's what he called her. <laughs> extreme Yankee. Is that what you call an extreme Yankee? <laughs> oh my. <laughs> yes. So looking into getting passports, we found out that uh, I really need to get my American citizenship, which I've been wanting to do. And I have felt like an American for many years. So um, Steve and I can both travel with American passports when we go to Israel. So we're working on that. And in God's timing, it's all going to come together. It is really fascinating to be able to have this much of the route of the Exodus identified simply due to the fact that the chronology has been corrected. Um, It's a confirmation of the missing millennium. It's confirmation of, of the truth of the biblical accounts. These things really did happen. And it's confirmation that the research work here that now has been happening for decades, is right on track. Again, do we have everything right? Are all the details right? Probably not. But boy, the mountain of evidence here that's showing we're on the right track just keeps building. And that takes us right into our quote of note for this particular podcast. Dr. Gerald Ardsma made a very small quip, a small quote that was very good. And here's the quote. Truth is very fruitful. The circle keeps enlarging. This doesn't happen with false ideas. End of quote. And that is very true. When you have all kinds of different opinions, when you have all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of different, you know, well, it was here, well, it was there. And the route of the Exodus, you've five different, (laughs) one map has five or six different uh, lines on it. How they probably went this way. No, they went that way. No, they went, something's wrong. Right. Something's wrong. What's what's the other quote? Theories abound when none are correct. Theories abound when none are correct. That's exactly right. So when you're on the trail of truth, it's like putting a puzzle together and you begin to get the pieces in place. And it's very hard at first to get the puzzle going. But the more pieces that go in place, the more... You can put additional pieces in place, and a beautiful picture emerges. And if you're on the right track, have you ever put a puzzle together and put pieces in the wrong place? Right. Uh, You will end up extremely frustrated, and you will not get the complete picture at all. Right. So truth is very fruitful, and to be able to continue to identify additional stops on the route of the Exodus with this kind of evidence is just compelling. It really is. And you just got two quotes. On our quote of note. There you go. We, we won't even charge Two you for Two for the it. price of one. That's right. We won't even charge you for it. That'll be free. <laughs> okay. All right. Aging 101. Jennifer? Yes. Aging 101. Today, our lesson is current research updates. We've been doing a series in this Aging 101 to help to um, bring our listeners up to date with the research work here and to get a grasp of it and an understanding of it because it turns upside down so many things that we have assumed to be normal, you know, all of our lives with aging and dying by the age of 100, et cetera. But of course, you know that we are coming at this uh, from a biblical perspective, from the longevity that people had for thousands of years during the early biblical accounts. So we have 
research updates today. And we're not going to dwell on this very long today. We are just going to let you know that a third edition of the book, Aging, Cause, and Cure, is now in process. Because the research continues to progress and be refined, So we're going to talk through some highlights of this new edition a little bit here, and then we will continue it next month and just reinforce the importance of supplementing the two anti-aging vitamins that we've discussed on the podcast several times. Steve and I have just spent quite a few hours pouring over the third edition officially as proofreaders and unofficially as just trying to learn more about this and understand the new developments in the theory. And of course, the first edition came out in 2017, second edition, 2019, 2020. So it's been about every two years or so, every two to three years, we've had a new edition come out. This is because it's developing research. And I will go ahead and share that what prompted this third edition was the fact that brand new research had come out on the mitochondria, which plays a big role in Dr. Ardsma's theory of aging. And as he was taking advantage of this brand new cutting edge research papers that have been coming out more and more about the mitochondria and how it functions in the body, then that caused him to have to go back and rework some parts of his theory. So here we are, and a lot is being learned uh, presently about aging disease in relation to the two anti-aging vitamins. One thing that is in the new edition of the book is some brand new mouse data, and that has not yet been published. Very interesting. Some twists and turns there uh, are going to be in this third edition. So we see in this a willingness from Dr. Ardsma to refine and adjust his theories as his work progresses. And this shows someone who is really after the truth, like our quote of note. Uh, It's easy, you know, it's very easy. We've, We've all experienced this, to become very married to your ideas about things. And in true good science, this cannot happen. We must have transparency and honesty at all times. Now, nothing has changed as far as do we need these two vitamins? Are these the anti-aging vitamins? If anything, the case has become even stronger in this third edition for the fact that we are seeing in the lab that they are making a difference for longevity in these mice, and the case just continues to build. So it's more of the theory of what's happening in the body uh, that has had to been reworked in this third edition. But the past couple months, you know, we talked about scurvy as a killer. We talked about pellagra as a killer and how the solutions to those things were scur- uh, for scurvy. It was vitamin C. For pellagra, it was niacin or vitamin B3. So the third edition is just once again showing how lack of these anti-aging vitamins are killing off. Literally, we are being killed off today by lack of these two vitamins. MEPA, MEPIA, cause deficiency diseases if you don't have them, just like we learned about the past couple months. And I'll just say this, you know, killers are not good. No. What do we do with a killer? Stop them. We do all we can to get rid of it, right? Our six-year-old could answer that question. What do you do with the bad guy, right, who's hurting everybody? Get rid of him. And so that's how we must begin to see aging. It's a killer. And if it's a deficiency disease, uh, as this research is strongly showing, we need to take action on it. The absence of these two vitamins, if you don't get them, you're going to grow sicker uh, with these two deficiency diseases year by year. That hasn't changed. What has changed is a bit of the understanding of how this works. And even in some of the possible potential healing of those of us that are, you know, how if you're the older you are, the worse your body, the shape of your body is in. And so that kind of thing, we're still trying to understand more and more about that. But the underlying theory that you need these vitamins. And the projected number of years uh, done by computer modeling for those supplementing the vitamins is very encouraging. 
many, many more years than we're used to right now. I'll tell you that. Right. Um, even if half of that was to become reality, we would be exceedingly blessed. Uh, so it's a very hopeful outlook, and right. we'll talk more about it. But we do know with certainty that in the absence of these two vitamins, a person is going to grow progressively sicker right. year by year, and you will have been killed by these two deficiency diseases by age 90, uh, almost certainly, and before age 100. So far, of all of Earth's billions of modern inhabitants, only one person that we know of has made it as far as 122. We talked about her earlier. Mrs. Kalmet again. Jean Kalmet. So meanwhile, it is absolutely clear from Genesis that people were living healthy, productive lives lasting more than 900 years. And as best we can tell, based on all the research, these two vitamins were part of their daily diets in the water that they drank. So there you have it. There is the research updates on Aging 101. Very good. We now have Helen's view. Helen interviews her son, Caleb, which uh, also is Jennifer's brother. He's the youngest, right? Caleb's the baby of the family. I'm the oldest. He's the youngest. That's right. And specifically, they're talking about Dr. Ardsma's illness that he had some years ago. And I won't give any of the details away, but I think you'll really enjoy this interview between Helen and Caleb. I'm in the studio today with my son, Caleb. He is the youngest of our 10 children, and he's going to talk a little bit today about what he remembers and what he experienced when his dad became very ill when he was a young boy. Caleb, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how old you are, what you're doing a little bit uh, for a job, and if you're married and if you have any kids, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Let's see. I'm 23, married to my lovely wife, Tamara. Um, No kids. Uh, I'm a former financial advisor and currently a small business owner. Caleb is designing some lovely jewelry. Tell us a little bit about that and you can even put a plug in for your your business. Sure. Uh, It's Caleb Allen uh, Jewelry Company. I primarily make jewelry for car enthusiasts, but I'm branching out to other things too currently. So you make like the logo earrings, necklaces, rings. Yes. They're like a Jeep logo uh, for all the Jeep lovers. And you do that for all kinds of different types of cars. Yep. That's neat. Okay. So this is Caleb's story to tell. And so I am going to let him just start talking and I might have the occasional question as he talks. Yeah. So the story really starts in around, I think, 2006 time. I would have been about six or seven, somewhere in that range. And I have a distinct memory of playing in our front yard. And dad was uh, raking gravel because we had a gravel driveway and it would get potholes in it. And every couple of months or so, it would have to be raked to fill in the potholes. And um, so he was out there raking some uh, gravel and about mid afternoon, late afternoon or so. And I just remember seeing him just completely losing all of his strength, leaning on the rake, basically almost falling over. And this was right at the start of, uh, what would, what we would later figure out was CIDP an autoimmune, uh, disorder. CIDP stands for chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. And it was, how many years was it till they, he got a proper diagnosis? Because I know it was... It was about two years. Yeah. So he went to, a, was it the specialist up in Chicago that actually got it right? And No, first we just went to our regular family doctor and he thought it was nutritional. So he tried to get him to take different mm. vitamins. And so we kind of did that for two years or so. And then we actually had a friend who said, you need to go to a neurologist hmm. because this seems to be a nerve related so then we did go to the neurologist and he did diagnosed him at the very same appointment for the first time we saw him. Yeah. So about what, about two years in then uh, get a proper diagnosis and then it, just the treatment started. 
Um, and I, I remember there being a number of different types of treatments, um, some that would keep them up all night and none that were particularly effective for quite a few years. Um, never really regained much strength to the point where I, I remember him being bedridden, barely being able to feed himself. Pretty scary, pretty scary stuff. First, he was on prednisone. Right. And it made him extremely uptight and nervous. Mm. If one of the kids dropped a fork, we pretty much had to peel him off the ceiling. I mean, he, he wasn't yeah. sleeping. So we did yeah. that for a year, and that was just a nightmare. And then we went to, um, do you remember us going to the hospital and mm. having the infusions? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. Let me back up a little bit. So about two years in. Uh, getting a proper diagnosis and actually understanding what the illness was, uh, the doctors started trying a number of different treatments, none of which really worked too well until the immunoglobulin infusions. Okay. So he would go, and I don't remember, I don't know what timeline that was. I think that was a couple years into the treatments mm -hmm. before they really got him on a, a, the, a, the immunoglobulin infusions. And that work seemed to work pretty well as far as getting some strength back uh, being able to return somewhat to normal life, but it was quite apparent that he was still probably at like 50% strength. Eventually he was able to move to, um, at home infusions. So he was able to do those weekly, which was brought a lot of stability to, um, there wasn't a big, big highs and, and big lows in the, how he was feeling. It was much more steady, um, which also helped to improve his quality of life. But Something about CIDP is there there isn't a cure. There is no cure at all. It's something that you live with. It's just like many autoimmune disease. It will eventually kill you. It's just a matter of how long. Um, some are extremely aggressive and, you, you know, you have weeks to live from the time you, you get it. Some are uh, years and years and, and before they eventually will kill you. So the amazing thing about this story is that when my dad discovered the vitamins and started taking them himself about three months after he was able to completely stop his infusions and take no treatments for CIDP, which is unheard of and basically should be impossible. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your dad and before he got CIDP and the things he did, what you have memories of him doing. Let's see. We would always go on a lot of family walks. I remember that around our around our block. Uh, he loves gardening, so he'd do a lot of that and take kids fishing on Sunday and those kinds of things. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of before CIDP. I don't have a lot of early childhood because you memories. were six or seven when he got sick. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that okay. was so. I have a couple memories beyond that point, but mm -hmm. not very many. So then, after he got sick, how did you? feel about all of that and emotionally and fears and worries. Do you remember how you felt? Mm. I think I was pretty young to process a lot of what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I don't think I had a lot of cognitive awareness of what was happening. Mm -hmm. I, I knew what was happening. I knew dad was sick. I knew that it was scary, but me personally, I didn't have a lot of thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. Do you remember me during that time and what it was like for me and yeah, you were desperately trying to figure out what was going on and, you know, researching and reading and uh, talking to the doctors and taking dad to appointments and taking care of him and uh, just uh, in kind of full out panic mode there for a few years trying to figure out what was going on. And especially until you got the proper diagnosis. So those first two years were crazy. And then even after the proper diagnosis, a lot of the treatments just weren't, weren't working well. Mm -hmm. um, very disruptive to life still. So, I mean, you were six. That means that I had how many other kids still living at home? It would have, it would been, have been five, Becca probably. and Rachel yeah. and Tim and Matthew was at home. Yeah. And anybody else? I think, I think that was it. Yeah. Yes. So our plates were extremely full with parenting and homeschooling. And then this thrown on top of it was, it was a crisis for the family, for sure. Yeah. So do you have any memories? And did you know, realize that when dad started taking the vitamins, Dr. Arzma's anti-aging vitamins, that he was getting better and pretty much returned to normal 
Mm. after about three months. Do you have any memories of that? Um, I think about four months after he started taking them, I remember we all later in the evening and we all sat down in the living room and dad had something he wanted to talk about. And he told us the story of how he hasn't been taking his weekly infusions over the last few months. And it's because of this discovery. It's because of uh, the vitamins. Did you know that dad was taking the vitamins? Not until he told us all a couple months after. Mm -hmm. I don't think he wanted to get all of our hopes up or even have that conversation with all of us until it actually did something. So you would not have had any hopes or awareness that he's taking the vitamins and maybe this will cure him. Yeah, it wasn't even really theorized at that point. From everything we know about the vitamins now, it looks like it acts very quickly against um, in repairing the immune system. That's something that a lot of people who've taken it have observed. So we didn't know anything about that at the time. Dad didn't know anything about that at the time. But uh, starting to take it to three months after the CIDP uh, completely have been being cured at that point. And we didn't even anticipate ourselves, Dad and I that if you took the vitamins, it might cure the CIDP. It was really only after the fact. Um, I don't know if you know the story, but after he'd been on for about three months, one day, we used to go walking every day and dad would ride his bike because he couldn't keep up with me. Mm. So so to just get some fresh air so that I'd get my exercise because he really couldn't walk. And one day he just said, I don't know what I just, I don't know what it is, but I just feel like I can walk around the block. Yeah, And I was like, yeah, right. And he said, no, I'm serious. He said, uh, and he walked all the way around the block mm. and it was just like a miracle. And it wasn't till about two or three weeks after that, that he thought, is it possible that the very vitamins that I'm taking are curing my CIDP? Mm. And this is after how many years? Of- 11 years. Yeah. So he was sick from 2005 for and then for 11 years. And his doctor said, you will never be cured. You will have this the rest of your life. There is no cure. Yeah. We only can maintain somewhat of a normal life by taking the monthly treatments. So um, it was a shock to us. And of course, we were thrilled. So he just out of the blue said, I'm not going to take the treatments anymore. I, because the treatments were not fun. I don't, yeah. You were not involved. Yeah. We did that in the privacy of our bedroom. It was subcutaneous. Yeah. And we would put a movie on. It would take three hours for the drip to drip into his system. It wasn't painful or anything, just time consuming. Yeah. And of course, we were thrilled to not have to do it anymore. So we just stopped the treatments and we've never looked back. Yeah. If you, what would, how would you describe the activity that your dad does as an almost 70 year old man? Um. Pretty amazing, honestly. He keeps up with me in most of. We do a lot of construction work uh, together at the at the campus here, and he keeps pace with me. He doesn't quite have the same level of of strength, but I'm twenty something year old. But he's got a level of endurance that um, is right up there with what I have, which is pretty insane to me, anyway. Right. So uh, we're all extremely thankful, of course. And uh, it's such a testimony. It was our first testimony. And of course, dad was the first person to take the vitamins and no one else was taking them at that point. It was strictly in the testing phases. Did you ever go back to any of his physicians? And did they ever? No. No, we never had one doctor's appointment after that, though we did write to the neurologist and let him know that he was cured. And we would love to have people that have autoimmune, Mm. you know, take the vitamins and see what it does for you. It might very well help you. And we'd love to see people that have CIDP take the vitamins and see, I mean, it it changed the course of dad's life for sure. Yeah. And all of our lives, you know, with all the children and everything. Yeah. There's a lot of people who have autoimmune diseases and a lot, not not as many of them are as debilitating as CIDP can be, mm-hmm. uh, but there are some that are extremely aggressive like CIDP that, you know, kill people in a matter of months. But there's a lot of people that live with them and they're, you know, they're, they have treatments that improve the quality of life. But with how quickly um, the vitamins act on these things, it's uh, it would be imperative just to give it a try. Yes. I mean, what have you got to lose? Yeah. 
Did you know that when we first went to the neurologist and he tested dad and measured all his strength and everything mm-hmm. and how much he could push with his feet and lift his arms, he thought dad had Lou Gehrig's. I didn't but know he that, didn't no. tell us that till afterwards <laughs> because then he did some more tests and he just said at the end of the interview where uh, he talked to us, he said, well, the good news is, is you do not have Lou Gehrig's disease mm. because that means you would die. Yeah. But he said it's related to Lou Gehrig's, except it doesn't affect the lungs. <laughs> so, of course, we were extremely grateful for that. My personal experience with the vitamins, my wife and I have been taking the vitamins for probably five years now, somewhere around there, four or five years. Mm-hmm. And well, my wife a little bit less than than that. But our, of course, we're pretty young, uh, healthy individuals. So there's there's not a lot of aging disease to be cured in our lives. But what we have noticed compared to a lot of our peers who um, are not on the vitamins is a just a lot less sickness. Our immune systems are working significantly better than they were before, where we'll be exposed to a virus that will knock out, um, you know, a whole family for a week and we'll, we'll go into their home and visit with them and see them. And we're like, okay, we're going to get it. We're going to come down with it and we're going to be knocked out for a week. And it'll be, you know, just an afternoon of like, "Eh, I'm feeling a little, feeling a little off this afternoon. I wonder what that is. And we don't really come down with hardly anything. We get maybe one bug a year, which is amazing. Both you and Tamara got COVID. Tell us about that a little bit. That was just sniffles, Um, tiredness mostly, but uh, just barely like an afternoon of like, "Eh," again, feeling a little off. But then there were some other people that you knew that were your age that got it and were got extremely sick and were not taking the vitamins. Yeah. It's hard to know there what what's the vitamins and what's not, what has that impact, but just in general, over the few years of taking the vitamins, we hardly have ever gotten sick, which mm-hmm. is just, it's a very nice improvement to your quality of life to realize like, oh, I haven't had a flu in a very long time. I barely get a cold every now and again. And that's, that's great. And you're mixing with the public. It's not like you're yeah. at home wearing <laughs> right. a mask and sitting in your bedroom or right. anything. I mean, you really are out there and yes. she babysits and you're out working with people and talking with people. So it's not like you aren't exposed to it. It's just that your body is in a much better shape to deal with all of this the truth is is it's a miracle story isn't it it's completely a miracle um i think dad put some of this in his book but having a i think this is one of the best testimonies for the vitamin and its effectiveness is it gives some meaning and purpose to those 11 years of struggle and pain and um, what the whole family went through and just the chaos of trying to figure out what was killing him and, and how to treat it properly. And all of the doctor's visits and all of the, I'm sure very late nights and everything gives some meaning to it. And that at the end of all of that, um, the thing that he's been researching and, and working on for 20 plus years ends up curing it in a few months. I don't think there's a, a better story for that. Right. And I mean, it really is nice to think back about it all because God makes no mistakes. And Mm -hmm. even at the time, it was a very, it was a deep trial, the deepest trial Mm -hmm. we've been through. And to see how God used that trial to to make the discovery of the vitamins, uh, it's just nice even as our everyday and we're having trials and struggles that we know that God has a plan and he will use it for good. Even if we don't understand that, it's nice to be able to trust him. With all of that, yeah. it helps us cope with everyday life. Caleb, do you remember one Sunday morning for church? We were getting ready for church. And do you, do you remember dad sitting at the table Mm-mm. and with his head in his hands crying? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think I do remember that. Yeah. It was an extremely low point. Mm. And he just, he was just so overwhelmed with the feeling of helplessness and just hopelessness and he was just we'd go to bed at night and he would he couldn't even lift the covers off his face he had no strength in his hands and just this utter feeling of we didn't know what was wrong with him and he had all these responsibilities and all this work he wanted to accomplish for the lord and it was 
that was probably the lowest hmm. point. We were getting ready to have house church, and he just, I think we didn't even have church that day. I think we just, I don't remember what we did, but it was really tough. You do remember that? Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember a little bit about that. I, I remember him talking about part of the reason that he did the put a whole new roof on the house, which was, I think, shortly after starting to get on some treatment was because he was under the impression that he was probably not going to live that much longer. And he mm. wanted to make sure that there was a good, good metal mm. roof on the house because mm. we had a, always had a leaky roof. Mm. Um, so I remember <laughs> I and him and Becca, uh, my sister Becca put that, uh, did a whole house. I think it was like a whole fall worth of work. Um, just putting a new roof on there. How did he do that when he was sick? I don't, I think that was, maybe that was I think the that prednisone was, time. I don't think that was prednisone time. I think that was uh, like 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. Okay. So. so it would have been, I think he had a treatment. He had some of his strength back, but Becca did a lot of that. Yes. Did a lot of that work. I mean, I mean, me and Tim did a lot of that work too, but we were pretty young. So right. we didn't. Right. About the uh, immunoglobulin treatment yeah. that dad was getting. Uh, part of the problem with that treatment is that your risk for cancer and other problems goes way up because of the abnormal amounts of, you know, it's not a natural thing to be getting megadosing with immunoglobulins. And right. so one of the risks was long-term use of this would probably cause an earlier death. Yeah. And so even though it was helping his quality of life, it was still a concern. So yeah. Just the fact that he was still not having to be on that, that was a great praise to know that, you know, he didn't need to have that treatment uh, and then worry about the risk factors involved. Yeah. Uh, My understanding of CIDP and, and most autoimmune disorders is it's the, the autoimmune system attacking the body, attacking. So your yes. body ends up attacking itself. So the treatment, the immunoglobulin infusions that he was on, it is a basically a suppression of the, the immune system. I believe so, yes. Um, so the risk for cancer and the risk for sickness and a lot of other things goes up. So it's either going to be the CIDP that kills you or it's going to be the treatment that kills you. Right. But, right. Um, you know, at least you get a few more years is kind of the idea of the treatment. I'm pretty sure that the body is attacking the myelian sheath, which is around the nerves, which would mm. keep him from having the – his brain would tell him to lift his arm – but it wouldn't get to the message hmm. to his arm, to the where, you know, to lift his arm. And the right. immunoglobulins call off the attack. Yeah. It's a weird disease. Well, Caleb, this has been really interesting. Brand new experience for me uh, doing something like this. I've really enjoyed it. And um, Caleb's a busy young man with all kinds of uh, projects on the go. And he lives about an hour from us and comes one or two days a week and helps out here at the campus on various construction projects. And we're very happy to have him as part of our family. And it's neat for him to share this story. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that, Helen and Caleb. Uh, such a fascinating story. I do want to make one correction on the timing that was mentioned there. I believe my mom, Helen, said that it was three months after dad had begun supplementing the vitamins that his CIDP was improved. But in fact, um, it was three weeks. So she just misspoke there. But it was literally only three weeks after he began the supplementation and he began to regain his strength. Well, in our next episode, it's going to be our special one-year anniversary. and. One of the really neat things we're going to do next month is hear from Dr. Arzma himself. Well, if all goes according to plan. Now, I'll let you know, this is a rare this occasion. Is a, yeah. We are getting him out of the research lab <laughs> and into the podcast studio. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you want to listen in. And if you have a question that you might like Dr. Arzma to answer, send it in to us. Uh, you can email us if you get the podcast notes on the email and you got our all of our information there. Send us your question and we will see if maybe Dr. Arzma can answer that. Yeah, if you've got a question on his educational history, his ideas about some certain thing with part of his research, 
His favorite Anything food. at all. His favorite food, his no. uh, favorite movie. I know what that is, but I won't tell you. Yeah, you can ask him anything you'd like, and we will try to feature some of those questions and answers on the on the birthday anniversary uh, celebration yep. for the podcast. And we're going to be planning to have some giveaways as well. You don't want to miss it next month's episode. Hey, thanks for joining us. Have a great 4th of July weekend. Yes. We will see you in August. <laughs>